Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Over this last year, Disrupted has explored many communities, traditions, and challenges. We spoke with cryptocurrency experts about building generational wealth. We talked with Black hair art curators about representation and beauty. And a recent graduate talked about the importance of historically Black colleges and universities. And a retired astronaut talked about the discrimination he still faces in his daily life. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today we're revisiting some of our favorite moments from this past year of Disrupted. Those were moments that opened us to new ideas, that sparked our curiosity, and helped us better understand the world around us. Later we'll reflect on refugee resettlement in Connecticut and the importance of building a civically engaged country. But first, as the U.S. enters a new phase of the COVID-19 pandemic and we contend with new strains of the virus, we're reminded that debates about the origins of COVID-19 made many Asian Americans feel like outsiders who were threatened. Offensive terms further perpetuated the violence that Asian American communities faced here in the U.S. Nancy Yao Masbach is president of the Museum of Chinese in America. In April, we spoke with Nancy about the work the museum is doing to celebrate Chinese American history. Let's hear a clip from that conversation. I asked Nancy to explain how the history of racism toward Asians in the U.S. informs the stories the museum tells today. This racism is grounded in history. And it's not the racism just against Chinese people in this America. It's the racism that's systemic to this country. And I think that's the fundamental headline we always have to grasp back to. It's not the Chinese Americans or Asian Americans moment to be the target of racism. This is racism that is endemic. It is racism that is a culture in this country. And for Chinese in America, you know, we Chinese in America have been here for 200 years. Um, And yet, do I often still get the question, where are you really from? Um, The assumption that one, Asian Americans are perpetually foreign, um, and two, that we are less American. Um, and, and, And the irony here is many Asian Americans, generation after generation, people left their native homes to come here. They chose America. And in Chinese, America is called the beautiful country, Mei Guo. So that's why Chinese people came here to begin with. They wanted to help build the country. They built the railroads. They wanted to rush for gold. They wanted all these push and pull factors to create a new life in this country. And after completing the transcontinental railroad, they they became a threat and threatened laborers of European um, descent. um, And therefore, the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 was then enacted. And subsequent to that, 1943, not until 1965, the discrimination has always been there. This is not new at all. One of the things that I don't think 
people fully grasp is that the Chinese Exclusion Act was built on this notion that people could come here but were excluded from citizenship because of this fear of what would happen if people stayed here. And in the work of MOCA, you also talk about the the internal dynamics of how the stereotypes about women from China then gets embedded into all of this and how these things persist. What's missing from our national conversation about racism and the racism that is experienced by Asian Americans? You know, if we in the BIPOC marginalized communities think and are afraid that this is just a moment, I keep thinking about what about the non-BIPOC marginalized people? They're hoping it's just a moment. And, and what is missing is the fundamental educational text that needs to be introduced in pre-K, in kindergarten, that needs to have an arc until fifth grade. So we can actually see one another as not one part of the melting pot, but as individual melting pots. I don't understand why this concept is so difficult. And then I do understand why it's so difficult, because people are trying to maintain their power. And the irony here is, the Chinese laborers were really revered as being incredible workers, like having this incredible work ethic. And, and so it was because they were a threat. And this is constantly repeated over and over again in history. Threat. Mexican laborers are a threat. Chinese laborers are a threat. Um, Japanese people are buying up the real estate in Manhattan. They are a threat. Threat to what? To white power. And the part that's missing is this has to be a systemic change in the classroom at a very young age. And we're going to hit a lot of multi-generational clashes, but we can only be that incredible melting pot of melting pots if we can get the story right in the beginning. If I were the Department of Education secretary, I would take every textbook and trash it and burn it and start new. And until we can actually get the textbooks written in a way that's representative, let's, until we can do that, supplement your context with visits to museums, supplement it with, you know, individual pop-up newsletters from Scholastic, McGraw-Hill, whatever it might be. But let's not keep teaching kids from these textbooks. And the other thing I think that we teach kids whether it's explicitly or implicitly, is what you alluded to, which is this model minority myth that, you know, people of Asian descent are inherently more intelligent or better at particular subjects, and that somehow gives them an advantage. And one of the things that you have talked about and also showcased at MOCA is how that myth is really damaging and detrimental because it does not highlight the diversity within communities, but it also gets used against people to stoke that fear in educational settings, in workplaces. How do we dismantle that myth? There is a real desire to compartmentalize to stereotype, to generalize in this country. I guess we think it's easier. And, and that exactly is right, Clara. The model minority myth, the better at math, it, it's, it's really based in, again, that fear. But how do we break it down? We need to understand the diversity of Asian American Pacific Islanders. Uh, first of all, the diversity of Chinese people. China is one of the most diverse countries. They have over 100 dialects. Granted, it's relatively more homogenous, obviously much more than the United States, 
But at the same time, there was a massive diversity. And then you just look at the last 100 years of Chinese history, this massive story of massive volatility, Chinese capitalism from severe socialism, and, and, and all of this, or Chinese socialism, however you want to refer to it. Um, but it's this diverse, diverse, non homogenous And also when you think about the experience of Chinese in this country, you know, you had the early laborers from Southern China come up 200 years ago, and then you have very well-educated PhDs, postdocs, you know, coming in the last 20 years, inventing vaccines and starting companies like Zoom. And yet we're still not American enough. So I think the question is really, when did one actually become American enough? I think that's the fundamental question. What does it mean to be American? Can we get that question right? And, and let's, let's, let's actually have a real conversation about it. And we got to meet people where they are. I think that that's really a big part of it. So as we come to a close in our conversation, Nancy, share with our listeners one of the stories that you've collected that really stands out to you. Oh, a young woman, 15 years old, she was with her mother on the subway and her mother told her to be careful, don't make a scene, don't don't stand out too much. And she said, why? She said, oh, they think you have the virus. And she said, but I'm not a virus. And that led to her creating, using her, her gifts of art to create the poster that many of us have seen now that I am not a virus. Um, so I think that that is such a powerful story. She connected wait a second, that's discrimination happening against me. I don't feel safe in my own skin. I am with my mother and she fears for me. But wait a second, I am not a virus. And it's just, it just it's so obvious and so powerful. And for a young woman, 15 years old, to say, I am not a virus. I am not your target is what the synonym in my mind is. I am not someone you can, you know, place aside or shove aside or, or belittle or make less. Oh, I mean, I am not a virus represents so much about what is wrong with this country. I am not a virus. And, and, and I just, I just, and she made the poster, she took her gift, she made a poster. And now we're going to feature that in, in the museum exhibit. But for me, when her mother wrote to us and said, oh, my daughter just drew this, what do you think? And they're using it, they may be using it. It's like, it, it just brought tears to my eyes. It took until I was probably 45 years old to think the words, I am not a virus. The same idea. You are not a virus, whoever's listening. You are not a virus. Yeah, that just, it just summarizes the problem and also the, the generation that's coming up that will own this. And we, I just want to do everything in my abilities and, and, and to make this easier for them. But there's a lot of work to be done. There is a lot of work to be done. That's Nancy Yao Masbach, president of the Museum of Chinese in America. And she spoke with us in April. Now we turn to a conversation from this summer. We know that communities of color have often struggled to have access to beaches. And here in Connecticut, 
that's due in part to a legacy of exclusion and policy decisions in affluent, white-run coastal towns. Andrew Carl is professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. He's author of Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. We talked to Andrew about Connecticut's hidden history of beach access discrimination and its unsung hero activist, Ned Cole. I asked Andrew about the origins of Connecticut's beachside communities. Really, in the early 20th century, uh, much of the Connecticut shoreline was still relatively sparsely developed, although you did begin to see the emergence of real estate developers who were seeking to capitalize on the growing demand for vacation homes, as well as the growth of bedroom communities in the southwestern corner of the state. In the early 20th century, you began to see the growth of these private beach associations, which were clusters of homeowners who developed areas um, along the shoreline for um, second homes and who, um, who developed these summer communities and then proliferated really um, in the first half of the 20th century as developers began to see that this was something that you know, had a great deal of demand. So you have these affluent families who want a second home, who want a place to relax and have their family there. But what you also talk about in the book is that there were a lot of families who could not have access to that. In particular, Black and Jewish families were often excluded why were they not allowed to be a part of those beach communities? Absolutely. I think that, you know, written right into the um, deeds on the, um, on the properties that were being developed in these communities were restrictions preventing the sale of lots to African-Americans, Jews, and other disfavored uh, minorities. Coupled with the growth of summer beach communities were towns that were beginning to invest in public beaches, that oftentimes were really public in name only because they found other ways to restrict access to the shoreline through residency restrictions and other um, restrictions that really limited the ability of African-Americans living in the state of Connecticut to enjoy the shoreline. We talk often about deeds and restrictive covenants and how it was written into the property of who could have access. But you also chronicle the more subtle ways, as you just mentioned, of sort of solidifying the exclusive nature of that. And one of those measures is via parking and who could have access to parking and what it took to actually gain entry to a park. Talk a little about that. Yeah, I think, you know, this is something that had long been a part of the um, suite of uh, restrictive measures that towns used. And, and I should say, I mean, you know, one of the, you know, one of the striking characteristics of these exclusionary measures that you see up and down the shoreline is that none of them ever had mentioned race in a sort of formal sense. Just as Jim Crow laws in the South, um, you know, voting restrictions and, uh, and the like, you know, often were very careful to surgically exclude certain groups without even having to mention race. And that, and, and this was definitely the case in many of these towns where you would have, say, not just residency restrictions, but also parking restrictions, other measures that really combined to make it difficult for people who do not live in these communities to enjoy access to um, public recreational resources. Now, that effectively um, you know, had a racial dimension to it because these towns also had numerous um, restrictions that prevented people people of color from living in these communities. So, um, you know, if you have you know, deed restrictions on, you know, much of the property in the community, if you have other um, restrictions that make it um, next to impossible to live there, 
then the end result is is that if you go to that beach on any um, you know summer afternoon, you're not going to see people of color there, um, and that and oftentimes, at least in its inception, was by design. I'm always struck when we think about history in this country that there always seem to be steps toward progress and then other actions that tend to undermine or try to gut that progress. And when we think about access to the Connecticut shoreline, that is one of those spaces. So the state Supreme Court ruled in 2001 that banning non-residents from beach access is unconstitutional. But even today in 2021, having access continues to be a hurdle. What do you see as the legacy of those discriminatory policies and practices and how it shapes where the state is today? Yeah, I mean, sadly, one of the legacies are these parking restrictions and other uh, measures that work to limit access to non-residents from shoreline towns, public beaches. Um, This is something that proliferated after that 2001 court case of Brendan Layden versus the town of Greenwich. And in that case, they only address the issue of these resident-only uh, restrictions, namely that if you could not you could not redefine the public as only constituting the residents of your community. That if it was public, it had to be available to the entire public. Um, but they didn't say anything about other restrictions. And so, you know, one thing that began to happen after 2001 is that towns like Greenwich really leaned in hard to making um, you know to adopting parking restrictions removing public parking spaces, requiring non-residents to jump through a host of hoops in order to even get a a beach pass. But on the other hand, one thing that I think is also a legacy of the activism that Ned Cole and others had done in previous generations was that we still see that today. You know, there's a group right now that's very active in trying to expand public access and defend the public's rights to lands that belong to everyone. Um, the Connecticut Coastal Access Defense is an organization that has really um, from, became active last summer um, as, they, as, as residents became troubled by the fact that you know, during the pandemic, it seemed as if um, some towns were using the pandemic as an opportunity to enact restrictions that might have been motivated in issues of race and class rather than public health. And so, you know, we can debate whether whether or not that's good policy or not. But I think, you know, in this case, what it did do is it galvanized a lot of citizens who are who are very concerned about um, beach access restrictions and, you know, restrictions to public space in general. One of the other long histories of this process is that the people who originally were able to buy property in these shoreline communities by and large, were middle-class families, and now over time have generated and accumulated tremendous wealth, generational wealth, that they can then pass on. So it makes it more difficult when you talk about how that wealth becomes politicized to influence what happens in the state. Earlier this year, a bill that would have banned officials from charging non-residents higher fees failed to even get a vote. What would you say, Andrew, to people in this state who are concerned about these legacies, who want to see a change and and do something different? What would you say about how local communities can address this history and really reverse those wrongs? 
Yeah, no, I think that's a, a great point and, and it's certainly one that opens the window onto how these issues like beach access are really part of a broader set of challenges toward making a more integrated and inclusive society for everyone. And I think, you know, for one, you know, just simply opening up shorelines to the public without addressing the underlying issues that prevent low and middle income people from living in these communities is going to have a limited impact. So this, I think, is one where, you know, beaches are not, you know, the kind of, you know, the driving force of these changes, but they really reflect a large set of practices that work to divide us as a society. That was Andrew Carl, professor of history and African-American studies at the University of Virginia. He's author of Free the Beaches, the story of Ned Cole and the battle for America's most exclusive shoreline. When we return, more of our favorite moments from this past year of Disrupted, including the challenges of refugee resettlement and a conversation with Melissa Harris-Perry. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're reminiscing over this past year and revisiting some of our favorite interviews of 2021. Coming up, a group of students share how they're adapting to life during the pandemic. But first, August marked the return of the Taliban to power in Afghanistan, and that political instability pushed many Afghans to flee their country. Earlier this month, the Biden administration reported that nearly 75,000 refugees have resettled here in the U.S. from Afghanistan. Connecticut has welcomed over 250 people who fled their home country. That process to resettle and integrate new families can be complex, and it requires a great deal of community support. Martine Dehert and Salma Musa have dedicated their careers to supporting new immigrants and refugees. Martine is the Refugee Services Program Manager at the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants, and Salma is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University. These two immigration experts helped us unravel many of the misconceptions around resettlement. I asked Martine to share what those first couple of days look like for new migrants settling in Connecticut. It's very hazy. You know, last night we had to pick two families at 11.30 at night. They arrive here at Bridgeport. They're very confused. They don't know where they are. What is the city? It's in the middle of the night. What does it look like? You're welcoming them when they arrive. You pick them up. Um, You know, I mean, we uh, set them up in housing. We look for houses prior to them arrival. We are the ones that are happy. They are baffled, right? They are, this is a new life and they are really unsure of what is to unfold. So a fear starts to come in. It is a very long process. We could never ask anybody to just adjust. Um, You know, it is not because the United States has opened its doors that that means that, you know, that everything is good for them. It's a really, really difficult adjustment and it takes time. To think about Siri existing for 103 years, which means that, you know, our our need to address immigrants and to support them is not new for the U.S., but the climate feels so different right now. 
how do we at the political level work through those partisan divisions to think about this is really about uh, an American challenge, but also an international question as well as conflicts seem to continue across the world? What I can speak to is the really solid evidence base that we have about the different strategies that are have actually been proven to be effective in getting people to empathize with refugees and to have more liberal opinions about admitting refugees. So things like appealing to people's personal immigration stories, and most people in the U.S. have one of those, uh, that is something that's been proven to get people more empathetic toward refugees. Exposure to refugees in a meaningful way. So not just kind of seeing them across the street, but actually having a conversation. So structuring a meaningful interaction. That generally is a positive thing. Perspective taking. So asking people, imagine if you were in the shoes of this person and you had 24 hours to leave and you don't have your documents, you know, what would you do? Getting people to kind of engage in this almost like a role playing exercise. So there are some of these kind of techniques or strategies that just get people to humanize and empathize with refugees. And it also translates into their opinions about what the refugee admissions cap should be in in a positive way. Martine, what are you seeing as the biggest challenges for refugee resettlement right now um, here in Connecticut, but if there are national trends that you're seeing as well? So the Connecticut trend and the national trend is housing. Finding housing right now is the most difficult task. There is, um, the market is really, really low but the prices are really, really high. And so when you look at finding a house that was already difficult before, but now it's actually really difficult, you know? And so we are looking at rents that are $2,000 and we can't take them because, you know, I look at myself, I'm not able to pay $2,000 on my own. So how am I going to welcome somebody in this country who possibly does not speak English and ask them to pay $2,000 a month. It's it's hardening, really. So uh, the only way for us right now, it is our hardest, our most difficult task, and so we're expanding. And so we are looking at providing services in areas that we weren't before. Like, I mean, right now we are looking at Stanford uh, and in Waterbury, where we didn't provide resettlement agency, but we are looking where are houses that are affordable. You know, Selma, I think many people hear about refugee resettlement. They hear about the amazing work of organizations like Siri or Iris here in New Haven. And they assume that these families come and everything is taken care of for them, that it, it's just sort of a blank check, that it's written, it's paid for. They have nothing to worry about because they're not contributing. What would you say to people who who give that response of, you know, yes, housing may be difficult, but it's all paid for once they're here, we're all paying for them as taxpayers. What's the response there? You're actually not paying for it at all. They are the ones who are paying for it. Um, They have to come here and they have to find two to three jobs to survive. There is not a tax dollar that is going towards you helping pay for this. And I'll just add to that, that the support period for refugees in uh, most places across the country is 90 days. That's it. Day 91, it's goodbye. We can't help you anymore. And there's no really funding for you anymore. So like the the actual federal money that goes to the the RMP or the, the resettlement process, it's only for 90 days. And after that, the support is basically gone. And the U.S. philosophy on this is really different from Europe or Canada. The idea is 
we are going to throw you in the deep end and that's how you learn to survive and fast employment no matter what the level is that is the best way for you to integrate that's the us approach and the entire funding of these resettlement agencies really rests on one key outcome which is how many of the employable refugees that you have received are employed at 90 days that's it that is the only thing the government cares about so actually all the incentive structures are to get refugees employed as fast as possible. So it's definitely not the story of, oh, they're a tax burden or something. Immigrants in general and refugees in particular, if you look at their contributions over their lifetime to the tax system and what they have taken out in terms of welfare, it's more or less a wash. Like once you take into account that they arrive with very different characteristics. So any difference or any like welfare burden is really because they arrive with different characteristics and even native born Americans with those same characteristics cost the system the same amount. So it's nothing to do with their immigration status. It's traits like what age are they when they arrive and what is their skills profile? And they're really no different than native born people when you start to actually control for those other characteristics. You know, I think it also matters where people are resettling or trying to resettle. We know that Connecticut is extremely expensive. We know that the Northeast is very expensive. And yet we we think and we hope that perhaps communities here may be more welcoming to people who are coming from other places. Selma, let's talk about your research as, as we think about next steps and what people can do to support. What would you say are, are one or two tools that that we should focus on as we think about that long-term success for families who are coming here? The main categories of interventions that seem to really work, um, one is investing in human capital. So if people already come and they're high skilled, recredential them, like find a way to, to translate their certificate or their diploma instead of them starting from scratch and being treated like a high school graduate. The second is financial assistance. So refugees are they are, you know, by and large poor. They are the working poor in America, just like many other groups um, comprise the working poor in America. And we've seen really solid evidence that there's no that there's no such thing as a, a welfare magnet. Refugees don't migrate to places that have higher welfare. And then lastly, um, optimizing the resettlement location. So what city are you placed in? And it's not just that some cities are better for refugees and some refugee some countries of origin are you know, better at economically integrating for whatever reason, those two things actually combine. So being an Afghan refugee in Seattle, like potentially that interaction for whatever reason, there's already a community, the labor market is a, is a better fit. That's the right place for those, for those people to go. Um, so that's a really powerful tool. Martine, Selma has laid out the, the best tools and the things that we need to address to think about success in a different way. What would you say to listeners about how they can help to support the kinds of tools that Selma just mentioned, but to help create a, a welcoming, successful experience here in Connecticut? There are so many ways that one can help, and it's not always about money. That human interaction counts for so much more than money. Again, that smile that comes in counts so much more than money. Knowing that they have a person that is an American that is going to welcome them, that's going to teach them about life here, and where they can teach also that American about their life and their culture and that exchange. And, and that's it. I mean, I think the minute that you meet a refugee 
it's no longer a refugee. That image that you have of a refugee is gone because now it has actually become a person that you can connect with. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, they're just like me. And he's like, yes, right? And so for us, human human contact is definitely uh, really, really important. But I would suggest go to the websites, go to Iris website, go to Siri's website and go look at all the ways that you can help. We have many programs. So as Selma said earlier, yes, the, the resettlement program lasts uh, three months, but we serve our clients up to five years. But I would definitely say past those 90 days, that three months period, that is when you know anybody could come in and that's when the service would be you know best. Martine DeHert is the Refugee Services Program Manager at the Connecticut Institute for Refugees and Immigrants. Dr. Salma Musa is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Yale University. After the break, Melissa Harris-Parry on how broadcast media can become more inclusive. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Stay with us. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Today on the show, we're listening to some of our favorite moments and conversations from 2021. Before professor and political commentator Melissa Harris-Perry became the new host of WNYC's The Takeaway, she was a guest on Disrupted. She talked about her career and reflected on the political discourse in the U.S., During this moment from our conversation, we talked about the importance of civic education and how couldn't we improve the culture of broadcast media. I asked Melissa how we help Americans understand the fundamental principles of our government and in turn, better protect democracy. I think of myself as Miss Frizzle, but social studies version, right? So um, if I could do anything, um, you know, I'd be a middle school social studies teacher. Um, of course, they don't really have those anymore. And I, I don't mean to be flip about it, but our movement away from a notion of civic education as a core part of K-12 education is devastating and meaningful, and we are reaping some of it now. Now, that doesn't mean everybody is going to go around quoting the Declaration of Independence or know who all the justices on the Supreme Court are. I, I wish that we would even educate our young people in the aspirational aspects of the American project, as well as sort of some of the basic, there are three branches of government, right, version of of political science. That's, That's one answer, right? And the second thing I would say is I think we have to fundamentally shift the incentives of the American media. When I think of the institutions that have failed us, American broadcast media, and particularly American television uh, and televised news, have truly failed over the past four years. And and they haven't failed because they're bad people or dumb people, neither one of those. Um, They've mostly failed because they respond to a set of incentives that um, operate exactly the opposite from broad-based public interest education. And since the 1980s, since the decisions made by the Reagan and then the Clinton presidencies to create this enduring profit incentive for televised news, we have made it profitable for television to divide us rather than to educate us. So let's talk about that because you were very candid in 2016 after leaving MSNBC that often the monster 
that people complained about in Donald Trump, you are very candid to say that in many ways, media created that monster or incentivized that monstrous action. And now we're in a space in 2021 where so many TV networks are trying to diversify their hosts and diversify their anchors and and cover these stories in different ways. Is there redemption in that? Or do you feel that there needs to be a reckoning of what is the role of journalists in this climate to be responsible? So again, I, I want to move away from the individual journalists, most of whom I think are um, either decent people um, who are just doing their jobs or actually really extraordinarily talented people and, and really actually move it again to the to the system or to the structures, the decision makers. So again, I, that's right. When I left MSNBC, the, the battle, the fight that I was having was about editorial control over the show and, and most specifically what I call the empty podium problem that we were being directed from third floor executives to take the empty podium. In other words, when Donald Trump was going to speak, but was not yet even speaking, to halt all other conversation, not to even take other Republican candidates, but exclusively to take the empty podium with a breaking news banner saying Donald Trump will speak. And then Donald Trump would say horrifying things, and there was no directive from the third floor to counter those horrifying things with for example, fact, right? So I couldn't be part of that. And this is not about self-righteousness. It is about tenure. Um, I had never given up my real job. So I was able to leave in a way that for most working journalists, it isn't. That's their job. And if they walk out, especially publicly, then they won't have another job. So how do we create an incentive structure that moves away from third floor executives or whatever floor they're on, wherever they are, from taking the empty podium or for the next four years, taking the tweet, right? Whatever the hell he tweeted was leading the news. One way that we do that is the power of consumption. What I'd like to say is that legislative action can do it. And of course it can. It was legislative action that unleashed this monster. But at its core, we consume it. And we could, by turning it off, shift that incentive swiftly. And it can't happen with just your family or my family turning it off. I haven't had it on for years. So I can tell you, it's not just one family at a time, but rather it's organized action. And I think this will go to the final point of what you said, which is about the diversifying of who sits in the anchor chair. That matters. Of course it does. But it can't just be about black and brown faces because the deal is there will always be a young black reporter. There will always be someone who they can put in that chair when Soledad won't do it, or Melissa won't do it, or Joy someday won't do it, or Tiffany won't do it, right? They're all, because the world is full of young, smart, hungry journalists. So we got to change the structure so that Soledad, Melissa, Tiffany, Joy, Jonathan, whoever, can all sit in those chairs, right? Nobody thinks there's a cap on how many white boys there should be. And in the end, if all of us are constrained to taking the empty podium, it won't matter whether we do it with a black face or a brown face or a white face. We gotta have editorial space. And that really is gonna come, I think most swiftly at this point from institutional change brought by consumers. 
And I think that's the piece of it, Melissa, that is so central, whether we are talking about the media space or higher education or politics in general, that it's not enough to just drop a person in or to think that two or three people can change what's been cultivated for decades and and in the case of American politics for centuries. One of the, the real benefits of your show is that it introduced us to people who were experts and change makers who may not have been nationally known figures, but certainly knew what they were talking about and were able to bring people in. Do you think that's an avenue for change now that we have newer platforms or this sudden interest that everyone seems to have in issues of diversity, for lack of a better term? You know, for me, it was ride it till the wheels come off, do every quirky thing. You know, I have no business being here, but here I am. Uh, there's a black guy who's president, and let's just do it. Like, you know, let's let's book let's book thirty guests a weekend and talk about Biggie's birthday and transportation policy, and and let's just do that because again, I, I knew it wouldn't last. And so I'll say, I think all of us gotta, you know, we gotta make our own shows in this whole story. You know. The, the young people in the streets this summer are the reason that networks thought they needed to diversify. It is maddening to me to think that no one thought we ought to have black and brown faces during the Trump years. Like, wh- what? Like, it's literally maddening. So, you know, in some ways, they totally missed that the most crucial time for those voices was during those four years. Why? Because the pressure came externally from the Movement for Black Lives this summer. So even though the Movement for Black Lives didn't say, one of our goals is for you to hire a Black host, there was no way based on the environmental change, right, that they created. So everybody's got to run their own show. And you know, I, I don't think you'll ever see my name uh, listed you know, on a petition to ever ask anyone to be fired. It's not doesn't mean I don't think it, but it's, I, I never, I never ask for fewer voices. I always only ask for more. I'd, I'd like to see more of us saying more about whatever sets of things. And so that's why I look to people like Ava and uh, Carrie Washington to Issa Rae. I mean, these folks who are making sure that there are more voices. Now, and all of them are media in a Hollywood way. But it doesn't mean they're not producing narrative work that is deeply civically minded. That was Melissa Harris-Perry, professor, political commentator, and host of The Takeaway on WNYC. As we began to wrap this episode, I wanted to share a clip from our back-to-school episode in the fall. The last 18 months have been difficult for all of us, but it's been particularly disruptive for young people. They've adapted to virtual and hybrid schooling, increased isolation and uncertainty, threats of gun violence, and we wanted to hear directly from students. Erica, Alex, Imani, and Zochi are students at New Haven's high school in the community. We agreed to only use their first names because of the nature of the conversation. I asked Imani how she navigated last summer and the calls for racial justice following the death of George Floyd. As far as just being in my community and being active, as far as protesting, and and in the beginning, I felt like I wasn't doing a lot. Like I was doing my research and I was spreading information to family and friends, but I was like, I wanna go out and protest and actually be a part of the cause physically. I was 
like spreading different newsletters that were sent to me during like in my email but I just kept bugging my mom like I need to go out and protest I want to hold up a sign I want to shout um and remember these people's names and acknowledge that they died but they didn't die in vain so being able to protest and stand with people who looked like me and didn't look like me it was really powerful and it shows it just goes back to HSC being able to stand with my peers, like during different programs, um, like helping the under, like lower classmen. It just shows that when you come together, you can create something big, bigger than yourself. Zochi, I want to ask you because, you know, one of the things that has happened for young people is that you are navigating multiple disruptions in a way that affects young people deeply, but that your voices are not always heard. When you think about all that you've come through and learned over this time, what is it that you want adults and others to know so that we don't make the mistakes of the past? So um, I want like adults to like hear us because normally when we like say something, they don't like, almost like they don't understand what we're trying to say. And sometimes it's confusing and, you know, they don't like get us. And we want them to like hear us, um, like what we want to say, you know. I really try my best to advocate for not only myself, but my peers and other students in the school, because there's just so much going on and some adults try and brush it off. They're like, oh, you're just a kid. You don't know what you're talking about. Or, oh, like you can't do that because such and such, which isn't true because like all of us have done, we've created projects that help our local community. And so just after a while of advocating, you know, going back and forth, even when you're shut down every time, the message eventually gets to them. Given what you've been doing to advocate for yourselves and for other students, what sorts of resources or supports would you like to see in your schools, in your communities, just in general, to really help young people not just make it through, but thrive? I would like to see more safe, like safe spaces and areas where LGBTQ people are not only supported or welcome, they're genuinely cared about and loved. Thank you, Alex. And thank you for affirming the humanity in all of us. Anyone else, what types of supports or or resources would you like to see for students and young people? Over quarantine, I really realized that one of the biggest things it affected was my mental health. And I know it affected multiple other people, people who were dealing with mental illnesses like depression or just a lot of anxiety and like their home or in a space where they really don't feel comfortable or available to talk to anybody. So for me personally, but other people like me, I think one of the biggest resources or even it doesn't even have to be money. Like when people say resources, that's the number one thing people think about. But just an opportunity to be yourself, but to just be comfortable with someone else. I feel like that's the biggest thing I want to see. Someone, people here to just talk to. 
So my last question to all four of you is what are you most looking forward to this year? It doesn't have to just be school. It can be anything in general. Alex, I'll start with you. What are you looking forward to? Um, in this school, we don't use the word clubs. We call them procos. And I'm really looking forward to actually having a pride proco in person. And just for people to actually see that they're not alone. There are other people like them. Thank you. Imani, what about you? What are you looking forward to? I would say academically, just getting into my dream college or just college at all, because I know it's a very big accomplishment when you graduate. And then personally, I really want to define what it is that makes me happy and what my happiness means to me. I really need to know and want to know what makes me happy and how I can go to that place every time I'm not feeling okay. Thank you. Erica, what about you? What are you looking forward to? Um, For me, I think kind of in part of what Imani was saying, I think just finding me. Like, I left school when I was a sophomore and I'm now a senior. I'm turning 18. I have a job. Like, I'm going to college soon. So it's like, I want to find out what works for me. I just want to find a way that I can live being me, but to be successful. I'm so excited to just like find my spit, find my routine, find who I am so that I'm happy in the place that I am. Erica, Alex, Imani, and Zochi are students at New Haven's high school in the community. Disrupted is produced by James Scoble Wolf. Shekinah Collier, and Katie Tularski. And as we wrap this year, I wanted to thank each and every one of you for listening and supporting Disrupted. Our goal is to engage in these challenging conversations to help move our communities forward together, but we couldn't do it without your support. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean, thanking you for listening and wishing you and your family a peaceful, joyous, and healthy new year. (laughs) 